As you turn there, as we head to the presence of our Lord in submission to His Word, let's pray together. Ask for grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the amazing privilege it is to enter into your courts with thanksgiving and into your presence with songs of praise. We long for the day when that praise will be pure, absent of our own sinfulness and full of true and real and uninhibited love for you. We long for the overwhelming victory your son will provide on that final day over our sin, its presence and its power. We praise you for the victory we already know of its penalty and of its power over us to make us sin, but Lord, we long for the day when it's completely gone. And we, with the great throng of heaven from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group, rescued by the blood of your Son, can raise our voice together and cry out, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. So Father, would you prepare us for that day right now? You've promised to wash us with the water of your word, to cleanse and purify the church, to prepare for yourself a bride, blameless and spotless, ready for his return. So we ask for you to do that work in these minutes ahead through very common, ordinary, normal means like the preaching of the word. So Father, we ask for a supernatural work through very natural means. Would you receive all the glory and the praise for it as we seek to know you better? In Jesus' name, amen. John 14 is where we're at this morning, verses 8 through 11. J.I. Packer, you've probably heard that name in his excellent book entitled Knowing God, tells the story of walking one day with a scholar, a fellow scholar who, uh, as a friend of his, had been clinging to the gospel of grace, and as a scholar in his institution, he had come face-to-face with uh, church authorities that wanted him to, to blunt the tip of the spear of the gospel, to, to stop being so clear about the gospel of grace. And this scholar friend of Packer's refused to do that. He, he stood firm on the gospel. He said, no, I'm going to preach and teach the glorious good news of Christ. And because he refused to back down, his career essentially uh, turned into a cul-de-sac never to leave. He, he dead-ended his career uh, academically and, and was destined to stay where he was at. As he and Packer were walking along together on that sunny afternoon, just talking about what had happened and digesting the realities, his friend turned to him in the course of conversation and said, you know what, it doesn't really matter for I have known God and they haven't. I have known God and they haven't. What did he mean by this? It certainly did not just mean that he knew facts about God or that he He knew in general the sovereignty of God even over this to work through it all. Rather, he meant that those who had opposed him and who had opposed the gospel did not really know God. But that through this and entering into this and coming out the other side of this, he knew God all the more. I wonder if you think in those terms this morning of knowing God or not knowing God. I wonder if you've thought of your faith in those categories of knowing God and not knowing God. You could make the case that this is one of the the clearest descriptors of what it means to be a Christian, to know God. So we use other other phrases, right? We, We talk about being saved from our sin by grace. We talk about being in Christ. We talk about being forgiven. 
We talk about the, the fellowship of the body, being in the body of Christ. All of those are descriptors of being born again. And all of them are interchangeable with this idea, with this phrase of, of knowing God. You might say that this is what we've been made for. From the beginning, we were created to know God, right? This is why Adam and Eve in the garden enjoyed fellowship with God as he came and walked and talked with them. He was making himself known to them and they knew that depth of fellowship with him. We were made to know God and therefore then to worship God in response to our knowledge of God. This is the longing, by the way, of the most desperate of sinners. They may not know how to phrase it or or say it, but in the depths of of their despair and depravity, they're, they're longing to know God, to in some way be able to access the God who made them to be made right with Him. This is also, by the way, the longing of the most seasoned saint. No longer how, how, how long you have walked with the Lord, how mature you are in the Lord, you still long for more of Him, to know Him more deeply. This is Paul in Philippians 3 when he's recounting his conversion and says he counted it all as dung, all his accomplishments of his past religious life. He, he counted it all as worthy of the trash heap. And leaving all that behind, he set his face to what? Know Him, know Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of His resurrection. This is what we are destined to in the glorious joy of the eternal state if we are in Christ. That we will dwell with God and God will dwell with us, thereby making Himself truly and really and fully known to us for all of eternity. In fact, as we come to John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer as He prays for his disciples and then for us, he says in verse 3 of John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus himself equates knowing God with eternal life. This is your destiny of being in Christ. It is to know God. This is not a new thought to Jesus, nor a new thought to John. Or to his gospel. In fact, we find this, interestingly enough, in two prophets in the Old Testament who prophesied judgment coming upon an idolatrous people, the people of Israel. The first is Jeremiah in his prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 9, speaking to them about their boasting and all kinds of other things. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is the the high boast of, of the true Christian. It is that you know God. You understand Him. You see His steadfast love. You comprehend His mercy, His righteousness, His holiness. And God delights in those who know Him. Later on in that same prophet, Jeremiah chapter 31, he speaks of the new covenant that is yet to come at the time of his speaking, secured by the Messiah. Notice how one of the marks of the new covenant is knowledge of God. For this is the covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What does that mean? Verse 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Your sins are forgiven in the new covenant blessings in the church age of grace because or for the purpose of knowing God. You may know Him. The other prophet is Hosea. Hosea chapter 2 is Hosea comes as a, a metaphor in his life, an illustration of the judgment of God, the steadfast love of God. He's told to marry Gomer, this prostitute. That story goes on throughout the book of Hosea as he continues to hold steadfastly to his wife, even in her prostitution. And this is evidence of or a picture of the steadfast love of God. In the midst of that whole encounter in chapter 2, God says of Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and listen, and you shall know the Lord. This is the culmination of the work of God in betrothing himself to his people and making them his people. It is so that they would know God that they would know him. Hosea 6, 6, chastising them for their delighting in their keeping of rituals and sacrifices. God says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is Hebrew poetry. There's parallelism here. So the, the steadfast love in the first phrase is parallel to the knowledge of God in the second phrase. To know God is to know the steadfast love of God and to walk in that love to others. So knowing God is the essence of our salvation. It's the, the essence, the sine qua non, if you will, of our eternal life. This knowing of God and this knowledge of Him is His doing for us. This is the gospel. This is the good news that God has allowed for you to know Him by His own initiative. So we do not know God by our own effort or by our own achievements. This is Gospel 101. I'm rehearsing it for you because you forgot since the last Sunday. You don't get there because you did something great this past week. You don't get to know more of God because of, of how wonderfully righteous you were in your behavior. You're, you're not entered into and welcomed into the eternal courts of the high King of heaven, treated as sons and daughters of the King because of something you've done. And the only way you can know God is because He has taken the initiative to make Himself known to us and to provide a way for you to know Him. He has sought you out to make a relationship with you possible through the sacrifice of His Son. And that must happen. I and mean, we understand this in every other stratospheric relationship. So these are really crass example. Think of Patrick Mahomes. Like you, you know Patrick, you know the name, you know his jersey number, you know his stats from the last three games, you know the defensive schemes they run against him to try to get him to stop and he tears through them all. You, you know his MVP status in the NBA and the NFL, you, you know Patrick Mahomes, but actually you just know about Patrick Mahomes. You don't actually know him, you just know a lot about him. 
For you to know Patrick Mahomes, he would have to take the initiative because there's a, there's a stratospheric difference in society between you and him. He would have to take the initiative. He would have to find you out and open himself up to you to you to be able to get to know him. You'd have to be introduced to him by his own choice and doing. He would have to open himself to a relationship with you. Certainly you see the parallel of thought there without much prying, right? On an infinitely greater and more important and much more glorious scale, this is what the God of heaven did. It's what he, what he did in salvation for sinners like you and me. Condescending to us, making himself known, seeking us out so that we can know him. This to know God is the full flower of the gospel of grace. This is the the gospel flower in blossom and bloom. To know God. It's to be welcomed into his presence with full and free access. It's to, to be called his co-workers. God calls you as Christians his co-laborers. This is what it means to be enlisted in his army. This is what it means to be called by his name. Children of God. Saints in the body of Christ. This is what it is to be clothed in the righteous robe of His Son. This is what it is to be eternally right with Him, to be joint heirs with His Son of an eternal inheritance beyond our comprehension. It is to know God. All that is set up for our text in John 14 in which Jesus in the upper room is seeking to comfort and instruct His disciples in the last hour. Soon, I mean within minutes, he's going to be betrayed and mocked and beaten and shamed and a mockery of justice will condemn him to die as a blasphemer. He'll lay down his life as a good shepherd of the sheep and die on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. And before all that happens, he wants them to know, listen, here's the truth. Here's what should comfort you as you prepare for that. So last week we saw him say, I'm going away. But I'm going away to somewhere. I'm going away to, for a purpose, to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to my Father's house. And, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back for you, right? And I'm going to take you to myself so that you can be with me where I am. And, and you know where I'm going, he said in verse 4. And Thomas, the ever-truthful doubter, says, what? we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? So Jesus responds in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you should have known the way, but don't. But now you do know the way. You do know the Father, and you do see the Father. And it's in light of that interaction that we read what we do in John 14, starting in verse 7. I'll pick it up what I just said to you. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us or we would be satisfied with that. Our souls would be complete if you would just show us the Father. We would be good if you could just show us the Father. That's the idea here in verse 8. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say? Show us the Father. One of the hardest things about reading scriptures, you don't know what inflection of voice to give to the sayings of Jesus. 
I don't know how he said that in verse 9, but I imagine in some ways it was dripping with some severe disappointment, possible holy frustration if there is such a thing. It's like, Philip, how, how can you ask me that? How have I been with you for three years? How have you seen and heard and you still don't know? Show us the Father. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Did you see the issue in this text? As I read it, did you pick up what's the the central thing at stake here? It is the knowledge of the Father. Jesus expects them to know the Father through their knowledge of Him, the Son. And He says, you still don't know Me, nor do you know the Father. And how does Jesus know that? He knows that by the question Philip asked Him. Lord, show us the Father. And He's like, how can you ask that? You must not know Me or know the Father. As we walk through the text, we're just going to cover verses 8 through 11 this morning. I want to give you four keys to unlock this text. If you can understand these four keys, you can understand the flow of what Jesus is saying here. There's a key request in verse 8, the key question in verse 9, the key claim in verses 9 through 11, and the key command in verse 11. All of them point us to the central truth of knowing God through Christ. If you get nothing else, get that. You know God through Christ. Christ. I'll tie a bow on that in the conclusion and drive it home to your heart. Why it's important that you know God through Christ. And I'm not talking to the unbeliever in the room, though I am, but I'm primarily talking to you, brother, you, sister. You must know God through Christ. This text helps you know how and why. The key request in verse 8 is Philip asking, Lord, show us the Father. It obviously flows out of what Jesus had just said in verse 7. That if you, you, if you would have known me, you would have known the Father also. And now on you do know him and have seen him. Those verbs are in the, the Greek mood of, of ongoing state of affairs. It's like you're, you're invited in to know me and you will know me. You're invited in to see me and you will see me. You're invited in to, to know the Father through me and you will know him through me. This will be true of you, even though apparently it isn't quite yet there. In response to that, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us, and we will be satisfied. That will be enough. We can trust you, right? Now think in the context what's happening here. Jesus has said to them, I am leaving you. And I'm not going to go away for just a short time. I'm going to be gone for a while. And I'm I'm going to a place to prepare for you. I'm going to come back for you, but I'm going to be gone. And I'm going to be glorified through my departure. And they're starting to put together that something bad's going to happen. We know that because Peter says in in another text in Luke, I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to be arrested with you. He just says, no, you're not. You're going to deny me three times before the break of day. 
What is it that Philip's saying here in light of Jesus' promise to depart and leave and say, I'm going to make a way to the Father and that's how you're going to get there is through me? Philip seems to be saying to Jesus, I want visible confirmation of that right now. Can you just open the, the veil between here and heaven just a little bit so we can see the Father and know that you know where you're going? To know that you are heading there and will come back for us. It's a request which we all are prone to, to want to walk by sight and not by faith. To know that God really is going to do what God said He's going to do. Before we go there, just to mention this, it is a good desire what Philip mentions here, that he wants to see the Father. That's a right, good, healthy desire of a true Christian. Lord, I want to see. Show us the Father. This is the, the culmination of your faith. This is the flower of your eternal life is to know God and be with Him in His presence forever. If you don't want that, I'm not sure you have the life Christ offers. So it's a right desire to, sh- to want to see the Father. Show us the Father. But there's something terribly wrong here, right? There, it's a deeply flawed request challenging Jesus in the moment, saying, we want to see the way to the Father right now. I want by sight that which you've promised by faith. Jesus had promised glorious things in verses 2-6. to he, he told him everything he needed to know about what was going to happen. I'm leaving. He told him where he's going. He told him what he's doing. He told him he's going to come back. He told him what's going to happen to them. I'm going to come back and get you and take you to be with me where I am forever. Glorious promises, right? Take those to the bank of faith. Live on those things. That is a glorious eternal inheritance. But sometimes it does not feel like enough. Right? It's not just me, is it? Sometimes those words of Jesus are like that. I mean, that's great, Lord. Show me the Father. Thanks for those promises and words, Lord, but I I really need to see something here. I need some supernatural expression of your power to to let me know that those words are actually true, can be believed and can be taken to the bank. This is really where we all struggle. What we see in Philip is all of us. Prone to think if we just had the liver shivers of some supernatural spiritual experience, some powerful display of God's supernatural power breaking through the heavens, then our faith would be satisfied then I would know that God is true and His words are true and I can walk by faith. If I could just see something, some small display of His glory, then I could know He will keep His promises. Christianity, however, is a walk of faith. Faith means you take God at His word and live accordingly. You believe what He has said and you stake your eternity upon it. And in staking your eternity upon it, it shapes your momentary life-by-life, here-and-now existence. Philip is a display of all of our hearts. This is his key request. Show us the Father. Jesus responds with a key question in verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? I think it's a gentle rebuke in the moment of Philip and of all of the disciples 
obviously don't know Jesus' tone of voice, but you sense some frustration, some, some disappointment here in Jesus. How could you have seen and heard me for the last three years? Remember in, in John 1, Philip's one of the first disciples that comes to Jesus. He's one of the, the first harvests of disciples for our Lord. He's been with him among the longest. And, and what now, Philip, is the problem? How can you not have seen these things? You must ask yourself, why does this bother Jesus so much? Is, is this a, an insensitivity of Philip to Jesus' struggle? Like, why now, Philip? I'm about to give my life for you, and you're asking now to see the Father? Why couldn't you have asked three weeks ago? Is that the issue? Is it a timing issue? Why does this bother Jesus? Was it because Philip was asking Jesus to do something Jesus couldn't do? And so Jesus was annoyed, like, don't ask me that right now. Believe me, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. Was it because they didn't have time for it? The soldiers are coming, Philip, we don't have time for this. Stop your shenanigans, we don't have time to to mess with this. It's a detour and a distraction and a rabbit hole I'm not going to go down. Well, he tells us in the text what his disappointment is. It's centered on how long Philip has been with Jesus and he still apparently does not know Jesus. Jesus had made it so plain and Philip had... Missed it. If you teach the word, if you disciple a brother or sister, which I hope you are, in some capacity, be encouraged by this in a strange way that often disciples just miss it. Hopefully not for long, but somewhere along the journey, you're just going to have to say, I can't believe they didn't get this yet. This is Jesus of the 11 in the room. I can't believe they've missed this here. All of his words, he says, all of his deeds, his works have been presentations of the essence of the Father. And here Philip says, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus follows that up in verse 10. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I think part of what Philip's doing here, which we're all prone to, is reducing Jesus to the appetizer before the entree. Uh, Jesus somehow is the, the gateway in, and that's about it. Philip's confessed with his mouth, I think, really truly believed in his heart, though his faith is not fully matured yet, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But I think that in Jesus' humanity, he's so human and so real to Philip that Philip in this moment minimizes Jesus in his estimation, making him the mere passageway of access to God. And that's what Jesus has just said in Human terms, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so Philip is making the mistake of thinking that Jesus is just the, the appetizer leading to the entree. He's good, but there's more to come. There, it's better. Once you get to God, it gets better. It's obviously a key fault for all of us to avoid thinking of Jesus as the mini-me of God. God in in bite-sized version, the real thing, but not completely and truly the real thing, kind of pointing to the real thing, but not actually the real thing. In these pressure-filled moments, like what Philip has in the upper room, we we want more than what Jesus offers sometimes. We want God to, to show him up and show up and prove himself to to be the real God. Like Jesus is good, but he's pointing us to the reality that is far greater. Part the heavens and make this all go away. 
that at the heart of it is what I think is behind Jesus' question. Have I really been with you this long and you still do not know me? That leads to the key claim in verses 9 through 11. This is the nucleus truth around which all the other truths in John 14 really orbit. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 9. Verse 10, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Verse 10 again, he says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 11, he commands them to believe that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. That's the nucleus truth, right? Can we agree to that? It's repeated multiple ways with clarity by the mouth of Jesus. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. We are one together. I am truly, really, fully God, one with the Father. Philip asking for a supernatural sign to prove that Jesus knows the Father, that he's the way to the Father, show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. Jesus says, apparently you won't be satisfied, Philip, because I've been showing you the Father the whole time. If I parted the heavens in this moment and showed you a glimpse of the Father, you apparently would not be satisfied because you've been seeing him for three years. You've been hearing him for three years. Every work I have done has been a work of the power and the majesty and the glory of the Father in and through me. I am one with the Father, Philip, and you have missed it, Jesus says. It's already what John said back in chapter 1. You remember that text, right? We keep going back to the prologue. It, it was put there preeminently by John for a reason. It sets the tone for the whole gospel. You remember that, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's everything you need to know about Jesus in one verse, and then explained through the rest of the gospel for 21 chapters. Fleshed out in a life and work and ministry, words and powerful signs. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. John 1.14 then tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says that we then have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right there again in nucleus form telling you God has come into our existence in the work and ministry of the Word. Jesus, the Son. Verse 18 of chapter 1, John says that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, or another translation, who is in the bosom of the Father. In other words, you can't get closer. Father and Son can't be any closer to one another. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. No one's ever seen God, but this God, the only God who is at the Father's side, in the Father's bosom, has come. And do you remember what the next phrase says? To make Him known. Greek, I only say it because it's helpful, exegeomai, exegeted Him to us. The Word came to make the Father exegeted to you. To explain Him to you. To lay him out before you and let you know the Father. Now, if this was just in John's gospel, we could just mention it and move on with life, right? This is a theme 
throughout the New Testament. We won't turn there. I've thought about making you turn to all these, but when you think of Jesus as the representation of God in human flesh, as the manifestation of God, you should think of these texts. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do you know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? By looking to Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 verse 15, speaking of Christ, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the icon, the stamped imprint of His nature, the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one over all that has been made. Colossians 1, 19 to 20, he goes on to say, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. I don't know if you've seen this before, but when you read that text, redemption follows incarnation. He can redeem you to Himself. He can make peace with you by the blood of His cross because... He is the exact representation of God, the fullness of God in human form. Colossians 2, verse 2, speaking of the Colossians and Paul's desire to build them up in the faith, he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Sounds to me kind of like how I started, right? The culmination, the, the air you need to breathe as a believer is to know God through Christ. To see God in Christ. Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells Bodily. Those are mysterious words. There's a universe of meaning there that is beyond our full comprehension. And yet they are as plain as the day is long. The fullness of the deity of God dwells bodily in the Son. And then Hebrews 1, 3. So think 2 Corinthians 4, Colossians 1 and 2, and Hebrews 1. When you think of Christ as the manifestation of God... God manifest, I should say. Think those texts. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is what Jesus is asserting to Philip and the other disciples back in John 14. He says, I'm the exact imprint of the nature of God. I am the fullness of deity in bodily form. I am the image of the invisible God. You have not seen God, but you have seen me who is God in human flesh. There's no blurring of the divine persons here. That's heretical. As though there's one God with three manifestations of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's modalism. That God appears in different modes depending on the circumstances of the situation. That is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture is clear. There is one God in three persons, indivisible always holding their distinctions, but fully united and one as God, sharing nature and essence, attributes and perfections. 
yet distinct in role and personality. The Son is saying here in John 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have heard me, you have heard the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. That is the level of unity and oneness of God as God. In other words, Jesus is not some rogue prince who decided in the kingdom of his Father one day that there needed to be some spice and variety in the kingdom. Leaving the throne room of his father, then he decided he would go out and find some rabble, some rabble rousers, some of the, the lowest of the kingdom, and make friends with them. Without the knowledge of his father, he left the palace and went and found some of the worst of the worst and started to get to hang around them and, and let them get to know him and enjoyed their company so much. He said, Listen, I'm really not supposed to do this, but I'd really like you to see where my father rules and reigns from. Follow me. Takes him in the back entrance of the palace gate and finds a way around some guards who are keeping watch and knows the the back passageways and gains entrance as the prince into the throne room of the father with a bunch of rabble-rousers who have no business being there, whom the father does not want there and will immediately remove once he realizes they are there. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not saying, I'm not really supposed to do this, but hey, follow me. You'll be blown away once you get to see my Father. I'm good, but there's more. Like, he's better. Jesus also did not come to win the affection and the disposition of the Father for you as a sinner. He didn't come to secure for you that which God was reluctant to give. There's united oneness inseparably existing between Father and Son. Every word and work of Jesus is an expression of the essence and the nature of the Father Himself. If the Father were incarnate, He would do exactly as Jesus had done. That's the point. He would have said what Jesus said. He would have performed the miracles Jesus performed. The Son perfectly obeyed the Father and in keeping with His perfect will. There's united oneness. This is the key assertion of our text. Jesus says to all of His disciples that all of my life proves this. Verse 9, He says, my existence proves this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Verse 10, He says, my words prove this. Verses 10 and 11, he says, my works prove this. Not just my words, but my works. In other words, every part of my life, everything you've experienced about me is evidence of my oneness with the Father. So now do you see how egregious it is that Philip would say to the incarnate God in the flesh, show us the Father. It's an inherent misunderstanding by Philip of what Jesus has been doing every day for the last three years. He's been showing him the Father. That leads into the key command, verse 11. Jesus says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Two times the the verb, the imperative, believe is listed there, the command. This is the, the double command of Jesus denoting the desired response of the disciples. And he's calling them to far greater than just, just a scent in your head that it's true. He wants them to go further than just agreeing to facts, knowing, knowing that it's actually right. He wants them to, to stake their lives on these realities, to entrust themselves 
to this as true, to agree with him that he is in the Father and the Father is in him as though their eternal life depends on it because it does. And this key command really is where we come back full, full circle to the beginning of knowing God. It is the temptation of every one of our hearts to want a fresh experience in the knowledge of God. We'd rather walk by sight and not by faith. But Jesus, through this text, is calling all of us who believe to believe all the more that He is one with the Father. He's not just the pathway to God. He's not merely the access door that gets you into the kingdom. He is God in the flesh. So the question for you this morning is, do you want to know God? Well, if knowing God is the essence of life, as Jesus himself says, then how could you not want to know God? And then the follow-up question is, how do you come to know God? So do you want to know God? Answer, yes. Next question, how do you know God? How do you come to know Him? You have to just bide your time in this life, walking through the, the difficulties and perplexities and broken world circumstances that God's entrusted to you to do and just get through them. And someday the, the veil will part or you'll cross the river, as old saints used to say in euphemism of death, and you'll enter in on the other side to eternal glory. And in that eternal glory, then you will know God. But until now, it's dark and mysterious, and you don't really know Him until then. So can you know God now? And if so, how do you know God now? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is answering in this text. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God in human form. Listen, every word, every work of Jesus makes known God to you. Puts on display for you the essence, the nature, and the perfections of God. He's not just a manifestation of God who broke through here and there through the life and ministry of Jesus. No, He is God manifest. God in the flesh. So as we close, let me drive this home to you. What ails your soul this morning? What's wrong with you? There's a lot wrong with me. What's wrong with you? Pinpoint it. What's the problem? Battling apathy and laziness and carelessness about your love for and service to Jesus? Battling struggle with the goodness of God and the kindness of God in your life and where is He and why hasn't He shown up? Battling with anxiety or fear over the realities of circumstances beyond your control and apparently beyond God's concern? Where does the press of life's circumstance create doubt in your heart about your God? creating distance between you and Him. 
Maybe it's the goodness of God. You, you might wonder what it means that God is good as you struggle under the weight of another trial. Or maybe it's the love of God. Is God really loving when this or, thing, this or that thing has happened to me? Or is it the power of God that you do not truly know if God is able? Can God really help? Can God really do? Or is it the wisdom of God? Does God really know what he's doing? In his sovereign control over my life and over this world, does he really know what he's accomplishing? Does he actually have it in control? Or maybe it's the righteousness of God and the justice of God. You see a a world run amok and you wonder, does God even care? Does he care? It's going crazy around us. Does he care? Will he ever intervene? Or maybe it's the assurance in your heart of, of all of these things. Maybe you know them factually in your head. You'd pass the Christian test and get an A on your exam and be called a Christian, but in your heart you're, you're wrestling with the assurances of them. To know them in a deep and real and true way. Know that God loves you, but you don't really know the love of God. What's the answer for you? What's the panacea to what ails your soul this morning? Psychology would tell you, look to yourself. There's an answer within you. You need a counselor or a psychiatrist to help you unravel it, and you'll find the answer within you, right? Doctors would tell you that the answer is found in in medicine and in science. The right combination of chemicals and treatments, you can be healed of what ails your soul. Dietitians and those who know the human body would tell you that there's something wrong with your, your intake and your output. You need better management of your physical body. And all those things have validity to some level or another, but they are not the answer to your soul's problems. What this text puts before you is that you need to know God. And you need to know God through Jesus Christ. We need to run to the Son who is one with the Father. Through and in Christ is displayed the fullness of God. So are you struggling with the the love of God? Where is that shown more brightly, more clearly, and more fully than in Jesus Christ, His Son? The wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God. You go down the list and all of them are put on bright display in the words and works of Jesus Christ. So I say to you, beloved, this morning, whatever ails you spiritually, the cure is Christ. You need to know more of God. In the press of the circumstances of life upon your soul, This is God's kindness to you to help you know him more. That you might understand, truly grasp the fullness of the goodness and glory of God. May God help all of us to grow in our knowledge of him through his son. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege it is to consider this text. More than that, to see the goodness and the glory of Christ, our Lord and our King as you in the flesh, making you known to us. 
So Lord, we ask that you would take this truth and cause us to run all the more fully and truly to a deep knowledge of you through more of your Son. Help us as we read our Bibles, not just to do what we know we should do for our faith, but to seek more of Christ, to know you more truly and more fully. Father, would you help us by your grace? Pray especially for those among us who don't yet know salvation in Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would use what's been said here from John 14 to convict them of sin and of righteousness and to show them that Jesus alone is their only hope for salvation. May you bring them to saving faith in him today. In Jesus' name, amen.